Listen to these words. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems, and he has a name written upon him, which no one else knows except himself. And he is clothed in a robe, clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in linen, white and clean, were following him on the white horse. And from his mouth came a sharp sword so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is his name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning with our hearts open to hear your word, to know your word, but even to more than that, Lord, to understand and comprehend you and your son, Jesus Christ, in whom alone is salvation and the work of the Spirit that teaches us, guides us, and sanctifies us. Bless this time together in his name, King of King and Lord of Lords. Amen. you will turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 58. This is a chapter we're going to look at this morning. Obviously, there's 58 verses contained within it. We will not exhaust it, but we will ask God to give us understanding to the comprehension of the text itself. So let me read this to you. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now I say this, brother, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I will tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all Be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed likewise. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing 
that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Over a period of time, my, my wife and I have enjoyed watching the classic movies. And to some of you will relate to that, Turner Classic Movies. And they had a very gracious host by the name of Osborne, Robert Osborne. Very knowledgeable of the cinema and a great introduction into whatever program was on that night. And the main thing that TCM used as a lead-in on this was the simple phrase, the essentials. The essentials. The essentials being to that particular program, the essentials that made up the classics, the content and context of the actors and the storylines and everything. 1 Corinthians 15 is the essentials of the Christian life. And it becomes a whole cauldron of doctrine and themes and comprehensions here. And in this particular chapter, it will help us bridge from last Sunday, which we looked at part of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, and take those pivotal words of Jesus Christ at that time and place them into comprehension and understanding years later in this book and then overall within the harmony of what is happening, the sign of the times, and what will happen. Augustine, I think, is attributed with this saying. He said, and this goes back to when he was alive, one of the great forefathers of the faith, lived in the 400s, died in the 500s after Christ. He said, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, love. And that would be reflective upon the love and the type of love that is conveyed to us here in, in the scriptures. In the essentials, unity, we must have understanding of the basic tenements of the Christian faith as they are found in scripture and taught to us to believe upon to live upon, and to look forward to in the culmination of them. So just as a matter of recap from last week, we saw that Christ conveyed the coming judgment upon Jerusalem, and that in 70 A.D. that judgment was fulfilled in its annihilation by the Roman conquest and general Titus, who later became emperor, and to this day a commemorative of Titus is in Italy in one of their museums depicting this triumph of going into the temple and completely burning it and sacking it. And as Christ said, not one stone would be left stacked upon the other. And that temple still lies in destruction today. The other part of that text from last week was the sign of the times. The sign of the times. We are living in the sign of the times. We are living in the end age. That period of time from Christ's death, burial, resurrection, appearance, ascension, and his position at the right hand of God Almighty 
has been completed. That ushered in the new covenant. And that covenant has a time period. We don't know it. Christ specifically told us it does not matter. What matters is the certainty that it will happen. He will come again. And that we know that there will be a new Jerusalem, a new heaven and earth at this period of time in judgment, at this period of time when Christ returns and gathers his church together and brings forth judgment on those that are outside of his church. And we know that this will come about as that last verse that we looked at last week said, when this gospel is preached to the whole world. That known world in that period of time has been established from eternity past and belongs to God. Ours is to live in that hope, abide in that faith, and to look up for his coming. As to the sign of the times, let me just read this out of Luke chapter 21. He says, when these things begin to take place, these signs, all these cataclysmic happenings upon the earth, you straighten up and lift up your head, excuse me, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth, dismay, tremendous dismay among nations in perplexity at the roaring of the seas and all of the issues going about. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world that they do not know. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and glory. But when these things begin to take place, all these signs, all these cataclysmic happenings, all these earthly phenomena, you straighten up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Your redemption is drawing near. And as I stated last Sunday, probably every generation has looked this way, thought this way, and felt this way. And we should too, looking for the blessed hope of our Savior and his return. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15 with the background that we've seen from Christ's teaching on the Olivet Discourse to those he loved, to his disciples, to those privately. For at the end of that discourse, chapter 24 and 25, that ceased his public teaching to the peoples, and it became private to his people, his multitude, his disciples, and particularly those men that were called to proclaim with power and authority that gospel, the apostles. And then at his crucifixion and resurrection to those that he chooses out of darkness into life, those that called themselves Christians. Christians. This text has basically three breakdowns as you have it in your handout within your bulletin. The gospel which saves you, by which you are saved. The resurrection by which you are raised. And the glorification or the imperishable inheritance which you gain when he returns. There's much more contained in these 58 verses. 
but that will be enough for us to digest this morning. So looking at 1 Corinthians 15, and looking at the first few verses here, follow along with me as I give you the essentials of the Christian faith. Paul speaking to this church through the Holy Spirit. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and which also you stand, by which you are saved. And if you hold fast, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as a first important importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scripture. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. And most of them are still alive, speaking in that century, in that generation. But some have fallen asleep. He appeared to James then to all the apostles, and last of all, if it was to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul. You as Christians should have indelibly embedded in your mind the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was crucified. He was buried. He was resurrected. And he appeared in a glorious body to those alive at that period of time. He ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. That's the essentials. Buried upon your mind and your heart and your soul. That is the gospel. And in all of this, it is a work of God. But then Paul takes a little twist here as he gets into the chapter. And he gives us a dichotomy, an antithetical argument here. If Christ wasn't resurrected, then we are most of all to be pitied. Because if there is no resurrection, there is no hope. If Christ died on the cross, we would receive that imputation of his righteousness. But if he was not resurrected, what life would we have? The essentials. Death, burial, resurrection, his appearance, his ascension, his position with Father now in the glorified state to come and return again. So Paul ends that argument and says, but now Christ was resurrected. And we even see within this text that he appeared to over 500 people during that period of time in his glorified body who recognized him, knew who he was, understood who he was, that validated his prophetic proclaim of himself before the cross, I and the Father are one. And in him alone is there salvation, 
So then in verse 20, Paul says, Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive in him. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, that has happened. Christ the firstfruits, death, burial, resurrection. Then those who are Christ at his coming, not possibly, not perceptively, not theoretically, at his coming, then comes the end. You see the parallel back to Christ's words in the Olivet Discourse, the fulfillment of the gospel and all these things and then the end. When he delivers up the kingdom to the God, to the God and Father, when he delivers up the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy that shall be abolished is death. We come into this world perishable body 75 years of age I can tell you mine's fallen apart pretty rapidly these last years the minute we're born is the minute that we are dying we are descending toward a period of time of death but included in that is the death of sin which has killed us spiritually And which has taken its toll upon our soul for each and every person and generation. For as in Adam all die, and those in Christ all made alive. And then there is a order. And the order is stated here, and in great harmony it relates back to Christ's words before his death. The signs, the destruction, the gospel being preached to its fullest, God bringing in his church through his son Jesus Christ, whom the joy set before him came to the cross to die and to be resurrected. And then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God. The kingdom of God is his church, and he will present his church, his bride, in holy array, in white linen, cleaned, presented before the Father in heaven because he has paid the penalty for sin and has redeemed us by power and authority given to him. So the first part sets us in, the gospel which you are saved. It is the gospel by which we are saved. It is the power of the gospel, the first essential within this particular teaching here of Paul to the Corinthians. The gospel alone is the only means of salvation. 
because Christ is the satisfaction for that sin. And in him alone are we washed and cleansed in the Lamb of God and have that hope set before us. Well, let's go to verse 35 and look at the second part here. It's by the resurrection that you are saved. By the resurrection you are saved. When you look at Christ's words in John's gospel, he says, unless you are born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You cannot see or know or comprehend the kingdom of God. And the parallel there was Nicodemus standing right before Christ and not understanding his Messiahship. As well as the Jews at the temple and all of that discourse in those three chapters before that. Wanting to know when Messiah was coming and he said he's here. Flesh and blood cannot understand this. Only the power of the gospel can convey it to sinful hearts bound in nature's darkness. So verse 45 starts with the question that probably many of you have had, other Christians over the centuries have had, very worth pondering. Without the resurrection, we are not resurrected life, regenerated life, the new life given to us in the spirit, the spirit made alive while we are alive. And the spirit and the body merge together. And there is still the old sin nature, but there is the newness of life given in the regeneration because he is alive and conveys that to us. But now this particular passage is speaking about when he comes, we all die. How are we raised? Verse 35, how does this work? Someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? And Paul says, that which you sow does not come to life until it dies. And he uses the analogy, the agricultural metaphor here, of planting and sowing, sowing and planting. And the seed dying, germinating, and then coming to life and growing. We are dead in our trespass and sin, as he wrote to the Ephesians. And it is God who makes us alive in Christ Jesus. So for the next few verses, he gives us that analogy and gives us that understanding, that comprehension about the parallel to a seed. So he says here in verse 36, You fool, that which you, do, that which you sow does not come to life until it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body, which is to be but a bare grain, perhaps a wheat or something else, But God gives it a body just as he wished, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one and the glory of the earthy is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for they differ. Stars to stars in glory. Verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. We are created perishable. Because of the sin of our foreparents, Adam and Eve, mankind has fallen out of position with God and therefore has become dead 
spiritually, soulfully, has lost that position that they had in the Garden of Eden and now are perishing, physical perishing and spiritual perishing. The resurrection of the dead, it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. There's the comparison. In Christ Jesus, in the work of the gospel, in the power of the gospel and authority, in the merger and the resurrection of the Spirit becoming alive in us through Jesus Christ and his righteousness, his atoning for sin, and his redemption of his people, we see now that it comes in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It comes in weakness, frailty, dying, it is raised in power. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. There's the seed. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam became a life-gearing spirit. The first Adam was created in the image and likeness of God. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, is a life-giving spirit. However, verse 46, the spiritual is not first. The natural comes first, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. As is heavenly, so also is those who are heavenly. And just as we have been born the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. This is a very factual, concrete teaching in the scriptures of the fact that mankind came into this earth, men and women, in the darkness of sin and the curse that was upon them. Very clear here that Paul is saying that there is in this resurrection of the body, in this raising of the body when Christ returns, for everyone who calls himself Christian and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ and has received his his grace through faith, there is an elemental teaching that we came into this life perishable, physical, without hope, which gives us understanding of John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish as we have borne the image of the earthy. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly, speaking of Christ's people. We have borne the image of the natural state, and in Christ Jesus we have gained the spiritual state that has been gained conveyed to us through the new birth, through the resurrection, through the regeneration to believe upon that. But now this all transpires into a different means into the end when he returns. The spiritual, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7, and the natural come together when Christ makes us alive in him. But yet there is still that internal battle between the old self, and the new nature in Christ Jesus. We have been 
made alive in him, made alive to understand our sin, to loathe our sin, to see the sin of the world, to see ourselves undone, to see our physical body perishing and know that there is more and there is more that we need and there's more to know and more to understand that there is a hope, a living hope in these eminent words. I'm coming again and I'm going to gather my church together and I am going to deliver him to my father and I will put an end to all sin and death. Father, thank you so much for the Love you showed to us in Jesus Christ and for the purification from sin because of the impeccable son that you sent for perishable and sinful people and for the Holy Spirit that teaches us and sanctifies us and guides us and directs us in this life and that we live by faith and one day by sight and we have a living hope and when he comes that hope will be assured and seen and we shall be with him forever and ever. How great a salvation you have bestowed upon us. Let our hearts be full of joy and gratitude. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.